0: When someone asked Thomas Aquinas what it would take to satisfy all of human desire, he answered them with one single word, and that is everything. Each of us, in some way, shape, or form, live out our life with chronic unsatisfied desires, and I think partially is because in the United States, the average person sees roughly 4,000 advertisements per day, and all that these marketers are attempting to do is leave us with a feeling that we don't have what we need, there's something more out there than what we have, and if we don't get it soon, we are going to be missing out on something big. I was victim of this a couple of months ago as I got an email from Charter. I know I unsubscribed from them, but now instead of one email a week, I'm getting three emails a week if anybody else can empathize with that. Uh, But in the subject line of this email it says don't miss a second. And instantly I felt this like worry that I was going to miss out on something if I did not click on this email. Now thankfully I did not buy anything but they got me good because I clicked on it and that's probably why I'm getting more emails from them. But it seems like Wherever we go, whatever we turn on, there's some sort of advertisement, message, or subtle push to think, act, or live a specific way. Whether it's a charter ad, TV shows that create lustful desires for a remodeled kitchen, uh, a, a media that sparks anger and hatred that culminates in more division, social media that causes us to subconsciously and anxiously compare our life, what we have, and who we are with friends from high school that we're never going to see again, millionaire celebrities that we're never going to to come in contact with, or our next-door neighbor that has a better backyard than us. And what this climate has created is a confusion, complacency, and exhaustion epidemic, where truth has become subjective. As believers, we settle for less than what God has given to us by focusing more on creation than the Creator, and we are living out our life in this constant state of unrest, simply because we have become defined by what we do with our life. This is the kind of person that we can expect to be if we adopt any sort of ideology or value from the world and not the kingdom of God. If we add anything to the gospel, if we make anything contingent on our own selves for our salvation, what we will breed out of this thinking that is the way of the world is an anxious, greedy, angry, confused, exhausted person, exhausted person fixated on pleasure, power, and ourselves. This is just the way of the world, but there is a different way. In Ephesians 5 this morning, we get to see a practical picture of a new way that shapes what we desire, how we live, and what our destiny is in the midst of a world that is radically opposed to the way of living that God had originally intended. It's a letter that Paul writes that provides clear lines, stark distinctions, and real encouragement for these Gentile Christians who were living in a place like Ephesus where ideologies and philosophies of individuality had created a culture that was starting to revolve around the self, pleasure and power. There was such a self-centered focus in Ephesus that they were essentially all living out their life as their own God. They decided what was right and wrong. Their meaning of life was to satisfy every single desire that they had in their heart and that they could possibly think of, and that their status was defined by what they knew. And for these Ephesus people in this culture, status was everything. This is the church that he is writing to. They are surrounded by this kind of culture and it wasn't just that these types of thinkings were normalized in the culture of Ephesus it's that it was being pushed and pressed onto the church so that there was this temptation for believers who were now getting to walk in a new way to go back to the old way and to give in to the pressures of the world and engage with it and not just live in the world but to also be of the world So Paul here in Ephesians, specifically the back half of Ephesians, is he lays out exactly how we are supposed to live if we claim to be followers of Christ. It's a distinct, clear way of living for three chapters, for half of a letter, so that we would know that if we claim to follow Christ, this is how you are supposed to live. But before we can talk about this practical picture that Paul gives in Ephesians 5, we need to be on the same page about something because these Gentile Christians in Ephesus uh, would have been reading this letter in its entirety all at once Uh, and so they wouldn't have taken a three-week break for Easter right between what the gospel does for us and then what the gospel moves us to do in our daily life. So I'm worried that if we just jump into this text of Ephesians 5 and we are talking about very practical things and we're talking about what how Paul commands us to live, you might mistake me for a legalist, and then I'm going to get an email, and Mark's going to get an email, or someone's going to get an email, and we do not want that this morning. So what I want to do, before we go any further, is sum up the first three chapters of Ephesians so that we can have this foundational understanding of the gospel, informing the practicality of the gospel in our daily life. And it comes from Paul himself in Ephesians 2.8, and we are going to read this all together, all at once, can we all do that? Thank you. Wow, delayed, but I like it still. We're going to do this all together. It's on the screen behind me, Ephesians 2, verse 8. Read it all together. For by grace, I have been saved through faith, and this is not my own doing. It is the gift of God. Perfect. This time, you're going to turn to someone next to you, just in case they weren't really saying it with their heart, and you are going to switch the word I for the word you, and we're going to tell the person next to you this thing everyone all together. Here we go. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. We have to understand this this morning, that it is nothing that you do that saves you, and no thing that you could do, no matter how well or perfectly, could ever come close to the complete and finished work of Jesus on the cross. It is done for us this morning. And because of what Christ has done, we are called and commanded to live very differently than how we used to live before he did these things for us. And so in Ephesians 5, for 16 verses, and even in chapter 4, as Matt almost said, Pastor Matt, I don't know if you're really, I mean, are you a pastor? Anyways, we'll, we'll discuss that later. Um, but what he does throughout these latter half of this letter is he just oscillates back and forth between the old life and the new life. See if you can kind of just catch this. It's on the screen behind me. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here is this new way of living. And then he jumps back to this old way. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Back to the new, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place. The old life, here's the new life. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is the old way. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Over and over again, Paul is constantly shifting back and forth from the old way of life to the new way of life. And the core analogy that Paul gives here to show this stark contrast between these two ways is darkness and light. It's not a new analogy. We see it all throughout Scripture. It's one that saturates Scripture. In the Old Testament, whenever we see darkness, it usually means uh, death, ju- ju- the judgment of, of God or Sheol. In the Old Testament, whenever we see light, it usually means something like the life of God or the salvation of God or the wisdom of God. And in the New Testament, they adhere to these same ideas and they usher them into this new covenant that Christ has done. Uh, and we actually start to see the embodiment of light in a person, like in John 1, 4, John describes the man Jesus. He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, making light synonymous with this idea of life. Or most famously, one of Jesus' I am statements in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. No longer is light just a realm or an ethereal idea, but now it is a person that we can point our life to and see clearly by the illumination of the Holy Spirit to the Son of God. And then Paul even talks about this throughout Ephesians. He's building up to this idea to the church uh, in Ephesus. Ephesians 118, he prays, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This idea of knowledge being uh, associated with light. Or Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardness in their heart. Over and over again throughout scripture, we just see reiterated that light is truth, knowledge, power, and life, and darkness is confusion, complacency, ignorance, paralyzation, and death. But what I want to give special attention to is that while this is not a new analogy for Paul or anyone in, in the Bible to use, and while I think that overview is probably enough for us to get a grasp of what darkness and light is, how he compares us in relation to light and dark is different than anyone has done before. See if you can catch it, verse 8. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Everywhere else in scripture, darkness and light seem to be this realm by which we exist based on what we do. That if we take part in acts that are sexually immoral, impure, idolatry, those types of things, we are existing in the realm of darkness. And the flip side, if we are taking part in the life of God and we're following his commandments, uh, then we are existing in the realm of light. But here, Paul doesn't just say that it's a place that we potentially live out our life in. He actually says it's a person that we can potentially live out our life as. He's not negating all of these other analogies. He's actually building it out to its culminating idea to show that what you do doesn't just determine what reality you exist in. What you do actually determines what your identity is. What you do either forms you, your person, your soul, more into an image that is light, life, power, knowledge, and wisdom, or what you do forms you, deforms you more into darkness c.s lewis says it i think in a way that only he can and it's a little bit longer of a quote but i really want you to hone in on this because this is essential for us to grasp this morning based on what paul is saying in ephesians 5 c.s lewis says this every time you make a choice you are turning the central part of you the part of you that chooses into something a little different than from what it was before and taking your life as a whole With all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into either either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be one kind of creature is heaven, that is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to one state or the other. Every single decision we make in this life, from the movies and TV shows that we watch, the music that we listen to, how we spend our time when we're going to the bathroom in the morning, how we treat others in the drive-thru line, What we spend our time, our money, and our energy on from the mundane to the massive, we are always being formed by something into something, period. There is absolutely no gray area, no neutral ground when it comes to how we live out this life. The problem is is that I don't think a lot of us, including myself, live out our life with this type of uh, consciousness about this reality. I'd say that most of us think of it as a Venn diagram which is on the screen. Other one. Is there another one? Thank you. Okay. You guys got a little spoiler, so just hold your horses. We'll get there. I think most of us could come to a consensus about things that belong in this darkness category and things that belong in the light category. Things that we know that as we do them consistently in our daily life, they will shape and form how we look, how we live, and who we ultimately become. For instance, we know on the light side that if we practice and we do consistently, we read our Bibles and we fill ourselves with truth, we pray, we we talk to God, we listen to God, we are just simply abiding with God in this practice of prayer. We know that if we come to church and we engage in Christian community and we are pushed and pulled to Jesus by others' faith, we know that those things as we practice them will most likely form us more into the image of Christ. I think we can all come to a consensus on that. And on the darkness side, I think the same thing. We could come to, to a consensus that if we practice or if we habitually do, uh, if we watch porn constantly, if we do crack cocaine or meth, if we worship Satan, those things probably aren't going to do the, gra- the greatest in forming us more into the image of Jesus. Could we all come to a consensus Are we all like thumbs up on those things in this life? But then there is this gray area where I think a lot of us just go, well, that's not intrinsically evil. And so it doesn't really have any bearing on how it is forming me. We think of a lot of things in this life and we engage with them without giving really any thought or reflection to how they are either helping us look more like Jesus or hurting us in our formation and transformation towards Jesus. And there are things that are so seemingly insignificant, things like not returning your shopping cart to the shopping cart center. We're laughing, but let me tell you what, and this is not just a personal pet peeve of mine, it's just the reality, okay? Because one time, sure, you're in a rush. Your kid's in the car, you don't want them to die in the hot air, whatever. I get it. But man, 50 times in a row, you could be breeding just some sense of laziness that starts to pollute other areas of your life. Hey, I don't have to do this. Sin is like a pollution. I think that's how we need to think of sin. It's not just right and wrong. It's a pollution. So that as we do things and partake of things in a fallen world, Adam and Eve return their shopping carts to the shopping center, okay? This is a result of the fallen world. So as we partake in those things or as we ignorantly do things in our life, sin just starts to pollute and creep into other areas of our life so that it breeds maybe laziness so we don't want to work as hard in other areas or maybe a sense of entitlement saying this isn't my job this is someone else's job so that when we see someone on the street that needs us or when somebody needs prayer or when somebody in the church has a need we go well that's not my job that's somebody else's job it may not happen but it may also happen at the same time I don't know I I don't know for sure maybe something that I think maybe we could more empathize with is like watching or reading the news I've seen that if I if I just engage with news sites or channels or articles that are blatantly on one side or the other and their rhetoric is just a full of obvious, this is where I stand, I've noticed in my heart I start to view people differently that think differently than what that article just said. That if I'm not careful about how those things are informing who I am, Slowly, I might start holding America as high or higher than the kingdom of God. Slowly, I might start thinking that people on the other side of the aisle are less worthy of the gospel. Or that for some reason, they're just a bunch of idiots that just don't know anything. And instantly, we're just stripping them of their inherent worth that God has created them simply because his imprint is on them. We dehumanize people. And we hold things too highly sometimes just because this is flooding and saturating our heads. And whatever saturates our head will make its way to our heart. And whatever makes its way to our heart will eventually be seen in the way that we live and in our hands. I don't want to sound like an 85-year-old man up here, but also music. Music has this power to rewire what emotion we feel in a specific situation i'm not saying you just only listen to the gaither vocal band out there not at all what i am saying is that we have to realize that depending on what we listen to in a specific situation we could be forcing a feeling into something that's not there we could be crowding out the spirit's voice with the world's voice that sometimes looks really similar but is not the same thing And it could just feed this I am the main character narrative, whereas 75, it's a made-up stat, but I'd roughly say 75% of songs are probably about the self, about you. Again, none of these things are inherently evil. Paul says in Romans that no thing outside of what is explicitly stated in Scripture is evil in and of itself, but just because they aren't intrinsically bad doesn't mean they don't affect who you are and who you are becoming. It's more like uh, this, which we saw spoiler, but now you get maybe what this is. There it is. It's more like everything is, there are clear darkness and light, there is sin and there is not sin, and then all the in-between is not a gray area, but it it is pulling us into the gravitational orbit of one of these two circles, so that as we practice them, as we engage with them, if we are not intentional with how we are engaging with them, we will start to look more or less like light or dark. There is no neutrality, we cannot unintentionally or ignorantly engage with anything of this world, because if i am apathetic or complacent or unintentional with how i live my life then the sure matter of fact result is that i will start to look more like darkness rather than light transformation doesn't happen without a radical intentionality lived out in the spirit transformation in our life will not happen passively it doesn't you don't just wake up one morning and you go sweet the prayer worked last night and we are good to go this morning there comes a point in our faith journey when we have to be brutally we have to have this brutally honest self-awareness so that we can look at our life and everything in it and see how is it how it is affecting who we are become, becoming this is not legalism because we're not doing this to gain our salvation friends our salvation is secure It is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. But this is transformational thinking. We are serving our whole life, every aspect of it, and we are honestly asking, am I actually living out the identity that Christ has given to me? Where I'm struggling to close the gap, like I said, I struggle with this too. Where I'm struggling to close the gap in what I preach and what I say, and where I've really been seeing myself being affected by the smallest thing, is basically when I wake up in the morning. Now that we have Tatum, I have a choice. I can wake up at 6.15 and I can do my quiet time and I can just slowly go through the Word and I can spend a couple minutes in solitude and I can just dictate the pace of my day based on the pace of that first moment when I wake up. Or I can sleep those extra 45 minutes and wake up at 7 when Tatum wakes up and then I can do my quiet time, uh, very rushed, Uh, and and really not even giving too much thought about it because she's next to me and I'm trying to make sure that she's okay and she's not dying as we tend to do with babies just to make sure they stay alive. And, and, And all of a sudden, the whole rest of my day is dictated by that initial start. It's seemingly so insignificant. 45 minutes in the morning does not seem like it would be enough to form me into a person. But what I have come to notice as i have been more and more consistently sleeping until seven and rushing through my quiet time is that when i walk slowly through that in the morning and i give it the time that it needs and deserves i am more patient throughout the day i'm more engaged with the meetings that i have i have a little bit more joy i would say when i am just out and about i think more positively it's not some self-help ideology it's just reality because when i sleep in and i'm rushed my whole day is just spent hurrying, trying to catch up. And maybe it's different for you. I don't know what you're struggling with, but all I know for a certain fact is that each of us are faced with millions of minute decisions every single day. And what we choose to do, what we spend our time on, how we give our money or use our money, what we, what we do with our time, what we really believe about our, it reveals what we really believe about our reality. How we live shows who we really think we are. Morgan Snyder says this that's been haunting me um, in his book, Becoming a King. If you're a, a guy, I recommend it. Thank you, Jordan Rogers, for giving me the book. And he says this, he says, We cannot live beyond the identity we have embraced. This is why throughout the letter to the Ephesians, in the midst of a world that is pressuring and tempting them to place their identity in something of the world or in themselves, he is constantly reminding them of who they are now because of the work of Christ on the cross. Ephesians 1.1, he greets them saying, to the saints in Ephesus. These people are not saints, okay? They are going through some real stuff. But he calls them saints. Why? Because it's not contingent on what they were doing. He's calling them righteous, Ephesians 2.19, he says, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens of the saints. We don't belong to an Ephesus. We don't belong to America. That's not where our allegiance lies. Our allegiance lies to the kingdom of God so that we're living in this world, yes, and we're called to steward this world, absolutely. But this is not where our identities are placed. It's in the next one. It's in the kingdom of God that is actually now here all around us by his presence, Ephesians 5.1, he says to be imitators of God as beloved children. We could spend a whole sermon talking about the word beloved. It means worthy of love. If you have any clear understanding of theology, you understand that before when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, the only thing that we were worthy of was judgment. And yet now he's calling them beloved. He's saying you're worthy of the Father's love. As Christ was worthy of the Father's love, you are worthy. This is my one and only begotten, beloved Son, in whom I am pleased with. That's how the Father views us, because of this new identity that Christ has given to us. You are worthy of the Father's love, as Christ was worthy of the Father's love. Ephesians 5 eight. once you were darkness, but now you are light. Once you were ignorant and you had no idea how to live but now you have been empowered. Now you have wisdom. Now you have real life that enables you to live how God intended you to live when he first created all of this. Ephesians 5:14 he says, "Awake, O sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you." It's a little snippet from Isaiah 51 verse 7. These were the words that were spoken over early believers when they were baptized. When they would go down to the water and they would come back out, they would say, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine over you. This passage is saturated in reminders of the power of the light that has saved them and of their now transformed new way of living. Friends, he has called you chosen, redeemed, a saint, and beloved And you are all these things in Christ all because of Christ. And so it rips out the excuses from under us because Christ has given to us and called us everything that we could ever possibly need in and through him. Once you could not live this way, but now you can live this way. You have a new identity, a new life, and a new way that enables you to live out this transformational, radically intentional life to become the person that God has created and is calling each of us to be in him. Once we were darkness, but now we are light. And the question is, are you still living as darkness? Or are we living out of and in our new identity that Christ has freely and completely given to us through the gospel of grace? And the answer to that question is contingent on whether or not you believe in the depth of your being that you are a chosen, redeemed, beloved saint. Here's what Paul is doing for 16 verses. I understand we're looking at maybe a little bit more of a macro look at this text than a verse by verse, but I'm just trying to get us to see that he is doing two things and two things alone in this text. He is reminding us of who we are, and he is giving us the practical day-to-day way in which we are to now walk out of this new identity. So to end this morning, a word on each of these ways that he gives. The first, he says it, to open up, therefore be imitators of God. The word imitator means follower or mimic. And imitating God is a command that we see throughout actually scripture that speaks directly to how we have been created. I love when we see in scripture concepts and ideas that are actually evidences of how we have been wired in our brain, in our biology. We have imitatory neurons in our brain that actually the way that we learn is by miming others. It's why when I'm trying to get Tatum to say dada first before anything else, I am constantly going dada, 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 because eventually she'll imitate me and she'll say it back to me. Or like I was terrible in any math class that the teacher didn't use at least five examples when trying to give a new formula. Because I needed to see it done over and over and over again before I could ever have a chance of doing it and not failing a class. This is how we have been wired. To mimic, to follow, and to imitate in order to learn and grow. So what Paul is calling us to practically do is to study the Gospels, see how Jesus lived, and copy him. Throughout this passage, Paul gives even more light to this truth. Verse 2, walk in love as Christ's love, to copy Christ's love, to walk out this life of love as Christ's love, looking to him and imitating and copying his love so that we are not, like the world, selfishly loving so that we can gain something from other people or objectifying people for our own uh, satisfaction of our pleasures, but we are sacrificially looking not only to our own interest, but to the interest of others as Christ did to the point of being willing to die for people. Or we are to walk as children of the light We are to mimic Jesus as he walked out this life boldly. He was not liked by a lot of people simply because he said it how he was and he hung out with people that people didn't think he should have been hanging out with. He knew the will of God. He had this power and this wisdom in his head simply because he was connected to the Father. And so because of that, he had confidence in everything that he was doing because he knew that no matter what anybody else was saying, he was doing the will of the Father. We are to imitate him in these things. So that when we read that Jesus was off in a quiet place praying, we go off, we copy that, and we pray in a quiet place. When we see that Jesus spent time with disciples and he imprinted himself onto others, so we should be building out relationships in our life where we are imprinting ourself and our faith on others so that we can say, as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ When we see that Jesus was eating meals with sinners, with hypocrites, with people that were despised and disenfranchised in society, we should copy him and do the same. When we see Jesus fast for 40 days as a way to start his ministry, we are also to fast, maybe not for 40 days because I don't want to be responsible for anyone's death, but in a general way to starve our flesh and feed our soul. Study the gospels. Watch how Jesus responded to certain situations. See how he walked and talked and what he did to stay connected to the Father at all times. And then imitate him and copy him. The second is that we see a practical picture of how we can combat selfishness, lust, immorality, impurity, and idolatry. And that's with the practice of thanksgiving. L.T. Johnson says that the important di- idolatries have always centered on those forces which have enough power to be truly counterfeit and therefore truly dangerous. Sexuality, riches, and power, all idolatry is a form of covetousness for by refusing to acknowledge life and worth as a gift from the creator, it seeks to seize them from the creation as treasure. Sexual lust elevates the desired object, whether a person's own gratification or another person, to the center of life and is antithetical or opposite to the thanksgiving which recognizes God at the center. What darkness manifests in us is this self-centered, individualistic thinking that makes us think that we're the main character in the story. Everyone is supposed to bend themselves around us and that we are the most important person in the room every time we walk into a room. And Paul says that the way to combat this self-centered thinking that manifests itself in practices of darkness is through a simple practice of thanksgiving. Verse four, he says, let there be thanksgiving. Or gratitude. Think of gratitude as talking about all that is good in your life to God while attributing it all to him. So that what is happening in our hearts as we are making this conscious effort to give praise to God for every good thing, we are lifting off this false veil of ignorance that says, I did this, I can do this, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps, I don't need no man or anything like that and we can instantly have that veil lifted and see and give all of the attention, all of the love and all of the credit to the one who is actually deserving. Gratitude is the practice of attributing all of creation to the creator. So that by constantly reminding ourselves of all of the gifts that the father who loves us has lavished on us, we would have this praise that takes us outside of ourselves and points us onto him. An easy practice to do that I have tried to do for a while now, not consistently, but I have tried to do for sure, is that at the end of every single day when I'm laying down in bed and my eyes are closed, I just try to make a mental list of every good thing that happened in my day. And after every single one of those things, I just say, thank you, God, for that gift of grace. Tatum giggled in the morning. Thank you, God, for that gift of grace. The dogs were laying in a sunbeam, and I love it when dogs lay in sunbeams. Thank you, God, for that gift of grace. The food didn't kill me or give me food poisoning. Thank you, God, for that gift of grace. I got to use my money that you have given to me, thank you, God, for that, to go out and buy a meal for myself. Thank you, God, for that. It is constantly thanking God for every good thing in your life so that you don't fall into the trap of thinking that it was by your power you did any of those things. If you're struggling with pride, selfishness, idolatry, lust, try this simple practice that takes three or four minutes. If you're worried that you're gonna fall asleep, know that I fall asleep almost every single time doing this practice. But I say, it's better to fall asleep to that than me scrolling on my phone. So I'll do that instead. The last one that Paul talks about, he says, finally, have a rhythmic structure to your daily life that creates space for you to engage with and encounter the presence of God. Paul ends this in verses 15 and 16. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Same analogy he's been using throughout all of this not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. This is Paul's version of teach me to number my days, O Lord. And what he's essentially calling us to do is to create a plan of spiritual formation so that when desire is not there, discipline would meet us and continue to bring us into the presence of God. There's an old saying, a failure to plan is a plan to fail, thank you. And I'm not talking about a plan that is so rigid that you have to let your baby cry for 30 minutes in the morning because I made this plan and I gotta stick to it and they can just choke on, on, on their saliva and snot and all that stuff. I'm not talking about a plan that is so rigid that you start to get the meat sweats when you're five minutes late and you haven't done it yet and now you're starting to think, oh, no, I, I'm not gonna get to it today. And then you start to feel guilty. I am talking about a plan that builds a rhythm based on where you are at. If you have 30 seconds 30 seconds if you have 30 minutes 30 minutes if you have three hours three hours it's a rhythm that builds in practices of jesus so that we can imitate him rhythmically in our daily weekly monthly and yearly life and this is the radical intentionality that we are called to have as beloved children the early church mothers and fathers called it a rule of life There's a book out that's a trellis and the vine as a way to have these practices support the vine that is Jesus so that we can bear fruit. It's a great book if you'd like to go read that. But essentially it is a plan of formation in our life so that we can partner in the spirit with the father to bring his will and to make this world and our hearts look more like heaven And what we have to understand today is that we have to set up something like this in some way, shape, or form, whatever you want to call it, however you do it, we have to set up these daily rhythms because we are on a dirt road of transformation. We are on a road for the rest of our lives that is securely pointed forever towards glory. And yet how we choose to live out our life on this road determines who we are. It shapes what we think about ourselves, the world that we're living in, and the God that we claim to serve and follow. Eugene Peterson calls this life a long suffering in the same direction. I think it's appropriate because we need to have the correct expectations that this is not going to happen overnight, but this is going to be a continual process of dying to yourself, imitating him, being thankful, rooting out darkness in your life by the power of the spirit and constantly submitting to him. It is a process of formation through a plan to formation. I think of it like a child who has growth spurts, yes, but most of the time it is seemingly invisible the growth that is happening in them. I would not know that Tatum was getting any bigger if not for someone who hasn't seen her in three weeks to go, oh my gosh, she's huge. And I look at her and I go, she looks the exact same to me. But what we don't see is all of the other parts that are growing. I think too many times we judge how we are growing in our walk with those monumental, massive moment growth spurts. And we fail to realize that God is most oftentimes working in unseen places where we don't even feel his presence. That's when he's working in us. George MacDonald says this, and then we'll close. He says, to give us the spiritual gift we desire. He's talking about this idea of formation, a transformed identity. God may have to begin far back in our spirit, in regions unknown to us, and do much work that we can be aware of only in the results, not in the process. In the gulf of our unknown being, God works behind our consciousness with his holy influence, with his own presence. He may be approaching our consciousness from behind, coming forward through regions of our darkness into our light. Long before we begin to be aware that he is answering our request, he has answered it, and he is visiting his child whom he loves. Friends, in the midst of this journey, you will grow discouraged. We all do. It's what happens. But have the confidence that he is working in you to make you more into his image as we partner with him to be formed more into his image. This is our opportunity this morning. We have an opportunity to come alongside of him in the spirit and by the spirit and commit to carefully live out our life with such radical intentionality that we would make the best use of time. I don't want any of us 50 years if we're still here or at the end of our life to look back and go we missed out on joy and peace and all the fullness of his presence simply because I never embraced the identity that he has now given to me friends you are his beloved child worthy of the father's love as he loves his own son Jesus so the calling this morning is to live Like you're his child. To live in and out of this new identity that he has given for you. To look different than the world so that he would be glorified and people would see that there is a different way than the way of the world. Let's pray. Father, we sit in your presence this morning thanking you for every single good gift in our life that you has, have just lavished onto us we thank you for the fact that you are constantly around us constantly moving by your spirit in our spirit to work in our souls and make us look more like you. Father, for those who are focused on their self this morning, I pray that you would rip off this veil of false security and that you would show them who has been working in their life. For those of us who are doubting your goodness, and seem like we can't even think of one thing that we could thank you for, would you just flood our minds with what you have done for us? And would your work on the cross be enough for us to praise you forever? Father, for those of us who are living out this life day by day, no plan in place, engaging with things without ever even giving thought, would you just give them a holy, holy, transformed perspective so that they can reflect back on what they do in their day and how what they do is impacting who they are becoming. Father, we give you ourselves, we submit to you everything, we submit to you this journey knowing that it is only by your grace that we take step Step after step, it is only by your empowering Spirit that we are even enabled to have this conversation and to talk about these things today in this way. Would you give us the confidence to live out this new life as your beloved children? Will we careful to give you all the praise and thanks as you're praying.